The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Hey, um, this happens to me all the time, you know? I get in the airplane, I kind of get everything all organized, and then just as about to take off, I realize I forgot to start the engine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it, it's like forgetting to put the wheels down and you realize how much harder it is to taxi. Well, yeah, okay, well, yeah, right, exactly. So did you, you know what I'm talking about here. This is a story that came out about, uh, let's see now, the headline is, okay, where is it here? This is from Airline Reporter, the Airline Reporter website. Two regional jet pilots forget to start the second engine. <laughs> I just this just kills me. Um, so apparently, what happened, and, and you guys probably know more a lot. Yeah, I'm, you have to know more about this than me. Um, so it's not uncommon in order to save fuel. And by the way, I'm not sure if I believe that, but to save fuel, they only start up one engine when they get pushed sure. back from the gate. And then they taxi on one engine, and then as they get up to the, you know, near the runway, they start the second it's, engine. It, it's very common. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's right. doing it. And and so now this particular crew uh, have been uh, have, have you know been been caught. I don't know how this came out exactly. I probably should read the story, but I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> it's never stopped you before. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. I, I figure one of you folks will explain it to me. Uh, the, uh, they went to, they taxied into position and went to go and discovered, this is not right. What the heck? And, uh, it turned out that they had forgotten to start the second engine and they were, tr now I, you know, I, I, apparently there are lots of systems to prevent this turning into a tragedy. So we can laugh a little bit, but, uh, and, and I got to wonder whether one of these things could actually, it might actually manage to take off on one engine anyways. No. Uh, no? No. Oh yeah, they will. The hell they well, won't. Uh, well, not, one not they're not supposed full of to. Passengers. Yeah, not, not full of passengers, passengers and fuel. What kind of airplane? Uh, so we're basically talking some sort of RJ, some sort of regional jet. Um, the story appears to be specifically about an American Eagle ERJ one thirty five. That's what they're showing in the photograph. It's yeah. A yeah, yeah. But I, I want to ask the question. Okay, it, it's been reported more than once now. Yeah, and the question is so. So does that mean it's happened a dozen times? It, the story oh, definitely yeah. makes it sound like it's happened more than once, and uh, and 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 so the story goes. Um, when they go to advance the throttles to take off, some sort of low power warning goes off, and they go, "Oops!" One story even said that that uh, the the uh, the pilot or pilots. Forgot to start the second engine. It got distracted during the pre-flight or during the you know startup in the taxi. Forgot to forgot that he had not started the second engine. Added power. Got this warning that said low power on the engine. Low power on the engine. He aborted the takeoff. He taxied back to the gate. He called the mechanics and said, "There's something <laughs> wrong with the engine." All right. And the mechanics looked at it a little bit and said, "Well, it helps if you turn it on." All right. <laughs> <laughs> now see I'm, that I'm, I believe really happened. Yeah. yeah. That that part I get. Yeah. 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 So uh 
this is just like nuts, I guess. I, I get, I don't know. You forget to start up one of the engines. It's just got to be, you know, stupid pilot trick of the week, well, I guess. Usually, the non-flying pilot will advance the throttles and take a look at the uh, at the engine gauges. There's an RPM gauge. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not really an RPM. It tells you a percentage of 100% RPM on the power turbine in one. Yeah. I believe I'm, re- I'm re- believe I'm recalling re- re- it correctly, but it I've seen them many times. It's an N1 labeled gauge, and there's one for each engine, and you move the power up until it gets to a certain percentage of N1 that's usually been calculated as the power needed for takeoff. Uh, it's usually just below 100 percent, 98 percent, somewhere in there, and off they go. And the non-flying pilot will look at both those gauges to make sure they're not over-speeding or under-speeding one engine or the other, and take a quick look at the fuel flow indicators to make sure that they're running correctly. You know, with within spec of one another, so that the engines getting full fuel, making full RPM and full power, and off they go. Uh, obviously, something else is getting missed in the process here than the second item, uh, second engine on the start the engine well, checklist. It well, sounds to read. me like sounds to me like the automation got to them before they even started glancing at the gauges. I mean, the automation popped up and said, "Oh, excuse me, one of your engines isn't making full thrust. You might want to, you know, look at this and press this button to clear this message." Um, but this is this is all just an advantage of, of propeller engines. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Over, yeah, they make a jets. lot more noise. You can tell the propellers turning at a glance. Well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, on a on a on a single engine, um, isn't that the big one of the big problems though? When you're flying a twin, uh, and and you lose an engine, knowing which one was isn't working. It's I, I not think, usually it, not usually a big problem. It, it's not usually a big. I, I don't. I think it's an overrated problem. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's it's pretty darn obvious. Very very quickly. It's very natural. But the, my resident expert airline uh, retiree tells me that the real problem here is state of mind. Yeah, exactly. In, exactly. in, in what way? They're just kind of be getting too casual? They're, or? They're, yeah, they're along for the ride. They're not in charge of this. Oh, yeah, another school of thought on this has gotten to be that there's been so damn many things added to the cockpit work list over the last 10 years or so uh, with more automation and other items on the checklist to make sure that the automation's automated automatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, on On down to... Uh, you know, if you lock the cockpit door, uh, you know, the flight attendants know to not let any hobos hang around the lavatory, unless, you know, particularly if they're panhandling. Uh, and it, they, if they interrupt a normal flow for some reason, it, it improves the odds of them never getting back to where they interrupted the flow. And that's yeah, 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 yeah. Higdon, we're talking about an engine. Well, that, I, There's I, a lot I, of dials. Thank, thank you, baby. I know. Thank it, you very much. When your when your airline's policy is, in instances where you're going to be y number of minutes between push at the gate, which is where they get credit for on time or late departure when they push from the gate, and actually getting on the runway, you know, getting your clearance to depart, if it's going to be beyond so many minutes, you go down the road with only one engine, mm-hmm. and. So many minutes down the road on one engine, uh, maybe a taxi change. Who who knows the distraction? I know that there can be a lot of them, 
And all of a sudden, it's like, uh, you know, American uh, Eagle Flight uh, XYZ, uh, we got an opening now. Would you guys like to go ahead and cut around the line and take off now? Can you do that in the next 30 seconds? Oh, yeah, we can do that. Sure. Off we go. Oh, wow. Damn. That second engine. engine. Just think of, of, you know, I guess two two thoughts. One, um, there's an old joke. Of of you know the guy who who only flies on four engine airliners, yeah. And and someone asks him, I said, "Well, sir, why is it you only fly on four engine airliners?" And being you know typically British, he, he responds, "Well, my dear man, it is because there are no five engine airliners." <laughs> but, okay. But why you know? Maybe if they had a four, three or four engine, you know, jet here, maybe it wouldn't be such a big deal. But well, speaking of four engine airliners, did you guys see the one about a seven forty seven trying to take off with an air stair attached to the back? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I missed that. I'd, I'd like. Yeah, to see apparently that. happened in the last twenty four hours. Uh, oh, really? I'm serious. Oh, really? What where, happened? Where in, in the U.S. or? No, it was overseas. Uh, I I didn't keep it, and there was already so much stuff on this list. I didn't want to add another airline thing to it. Oh, uh, you know, I'm googling it, it, that right now. As as a uh, as a uh, follow along to this, though, it just shows what can happen when you know you flying at a different level of aviation business. Yeah, you can, drag, gonna, we you can were, drag your stare a long way. Yeah, we really need to start paying pilots more. That's basically what it boils down to. You know, we got to get get we got to get the A team on the on the job. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair. It's not a. Is it a question of the A team? Is this just is this poor piloting or is this complacency or is this? It's this is just complacency and a lot going on and maybe a very boring afternoon for this particular crew and. They but finally, they, get to, they finally get to the number one slot and get cleared for takeoff, and they forgot something. They didn't. I that's, agree. That's, that's part of it. That's part of it. The other part of it is, yeah, we are not paying pilots enough. Um, uh, I don't think that that is the issue here, however. No, I think the the the, the length of the work day, the number of the segments that they have to fly, and, and, and other things play into it as well. Uh, but you know, I can just hear the I can just hear the chief pilot for a couple of these outfits going, guys, guys, we got we got to stop that, uh, you know, taking off on one engine thing. But hey, guys, just want to let you know the the this year this this month's pilot of the month, flight crew of the month goes to the guys that only fly on one engine for saving all that fuel. Yeah, I know. Really, good job, guys. Good job. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode one hundred and eighty-eight of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We are uh, finally recording this episode on, uh, I'll explain that in a minute, Sunday evening, May 23rd, 2010. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar are uh, a bunch of my good friends. First of all, uh, out there is uh, Dave Higdon, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you this evening? Oh, it's just excellente. I hope everybody's having a great weekend. Everything dried out. Last time we were talking to you, it was, I believe, squishy. Uh, yeah, it, it actually, we've had uh, about 72 consecutive hours without precipitation, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting in the uh, bush hog and cutting down my grass here in the next few days. The bush hog? Yeah, it's been so long since it was dry enough to cut, it's about the height of the dog now. I see, okay. And also joining us here in the hangar this evening is Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb, how are you? I'm fine. I don't have a, a bush hog. I just pay people to do that stuff. Yeah. 
You just taxi the bonanza around. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, I do have a bush hog, but it's it's not here in Florida. It's elsewhere. Um. <laughs> and also with us tonight is Amy Lavoda, who's talking to us from uh, Fort Myers, Florida. Right, Amy? Is that where you are? That is correct. How are you doing tonight? Doing wonderful. Just wonderful. Thank you. So, uh, and uh, we're going to catch up on what you've been up to lately. But uh, finally, I want to say I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from uh, the UCAP Summer Headquarters, high atop Lookout Point in... Uh, in in so beautiful today that I kind of sort of forgot what day it was, Nottingham, New Hampshire. Um, the, uh, we're recording this episode a little bit later than we had originally planned because I kind of spaced out and forgot that we were going to do the podcast tonight. And I, I want to publicly apologize to my fellow podcasters here that... Well, uh, I, I we was weren't going to say anything. We no, 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 no. Fair is fair. I, I want to fess up here. Um, and apologize to you guys. You're, you're very understanding of this because I just completely, I was just having such a good day. And uh, But I, you should know that I am being punished because when you did finally track me down, we were going to start at 7 and you tra- tracked me down at 10 past 7. I was in my car driving down the road to pick up my takeout Chinese food for dinner. And so I went down and I continued down. I got my Chinese food. I came back here. I'm looking at the bag with my Chinese food in it right there at, that I don't get to eat until we actually finish the uh, podcast here. So my apologies for the confusion. but uh, Wonton over the line. Oh, man. It's just a shame you can't eat Chinese food through Skype. Yeah, I know. Well, I could eat without, you know, I can drink my beer. I don't know why I couldn't eat my Chinese food, but no, I won't. I won't. I, I've eaten during the podcast before. I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that, actually. Um, <laughs> There's this little thing called a mute button. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know. Um, if you knew sushi like I, I have way, way more things to distract me than than eating. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, not gonna add that to the list. Hey, Amy, how you doing? We haven't seen you since uh, Sun and Fun. Uh, what you been up to? Oh, I know what you've been up to. You, you uh, went off on an adventure. I did. I did. I was a traveling fool. Where, traveling where did you go fool? this time? I want to work for your magazine because they send you a lot of exciting places. Uh, where did you go this time? <laughs> I went to Geneva for the European Business uh, Aviation Convention. The so-called eBase. eBase. That's eBase. exactly right. We talked about eBase on the podcast a few episodes ago, but we did it from a great distance and more or less making things up. You were actually there. What was it like? It was very optimistic. Really? That's nice. In, yes. can, can you give us an example of the optimism? Well, it was their 10th anniversary, and the, the attendance was up. They had completely filled out their static display. They had completely filled up the PAL Expo, which is a really cool exposition. Now, you know, they do a great job of having indoor expositions in Europe. Uh, if you guys haven't been to Air Friedrichshaven, you really need to decide to go one year because that's a super show as well. Mm-hmm. This is a very different show than Air Friedrichshaven. Um, this really is catering strictly to business aircraft. Now, that being said, Cessna, there were Cirrus there. Um, there were certainly Piper there. But um, there was also the Avro Business Jet and uh, the A318 set up in a business livery and the Boeing Business Jet uh, crowd. And everybody and anybody who has anything to do with servicing or outfitting those type of aircraft 
were at this show. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's it's kind of a Tony deal, too. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Yeah, Tony, as in, you know, the suit and tie crowd. Okay. Um, as in, you know how there's a couple, if you've been to the National Business Aviation uh, Association meetings, you know how... Come about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, there's a couple of places that kind of break out their own little cocktail party deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that happens with all the boots at the uh, show. So you had another reason to want to go to this show. It becomes a, a roving, loosen up and uh, sign that contract kind uh, of deal. I see, okay. And with food and, and all kinds of stuff. I was actually um, at... I was supporting Women in Corporate Aviation, which is an outgrowth of Women in Aviation International, and they were giving away a scholarship at the event, and they had a table sharing with a booth of um, a school for corporate flight attendants. And what was so cool about that is one of the, the shticks of the school for corporate flight attendants, and they were very, very nice people, Swan Heights, they're in the Netherlands. Um, Harlem, which is the name of the town in Holland, where they're located. Uh-huh. Um, and they had someone who mixed up um, really good Dutch gin called Geneva, which is very different from Tacqueray or any gin like that, into special pink and green cocktails in the afternoon and then they had this massive round of really aged gouda that they would chip conks off of and put out there i mean it was just very unusual stuff and and what was so cool is that they were what they were trying to show off were their skills that they had learned at school that would make you want to use them as a flight attendant oh okay so you get that? Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, so it was a great group to hang with. Because, oh, yeah. you know, they're trying to impress you. with. There was with gin. Their, well, there was gin. And Gouda. And Gouda. I got more Gouda than I got gin. I Does actually get had to work at the show. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, they were they were a great crowd. Uh, we we were able to give Kajuju Leboni... Um, who, remember I went to Nairobi last summer? Yeah. yeah. I was going to make it terrible. Never mind. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was going to say Gesundheit, but that would have been, yeah. that would have been a really tasteless joke. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, She's lovely, by the way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, tell and us more about her. If you go on, my, on, on the Women in Aviation uh, Daily Connect blog, you can see. Anyhow, Kajuju has been working to organize kids in Kenya. She's done some great uh, Young Eagles-type uh, introduction to flying with them. These are kids who are living in orphanages uh, who really would never be exposed to aviation, much less a computer or, for that matter, um, books. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for Kajuju, and uh, she has she has won a thousand dollar scholarship. One of the first things that we talked about, and then she went back and immediately um, created was a mobile li- lending library out of books and magazines and things like that, which she's literally created 
and put in the back of her mother's station wagon and is taking from orphanage to school to orphanage and keeping track of which kids have what. And so uh, she started this this library, and it's an aviation library. Very cool. For these kids. Yeah. And next thing up is we're, we're looking to find her a computer that's got uh, a SIM card in it or just a computer that we can we can hook up to Safaricom so that she can introduce um, like the Aero Scholars program to them. That's neat. That's neat. That's, that's next. So um, it's really exciting to watch watch this young lady. I say young lady. She's she's you know in her twenties and educated in Sweden, has a pilot certificate, um, and and wants to give back. Mm-hmm. So badly, so uh, very exciting stuff. Very cool. Very and cool. I was happy to happy to be a part of that, and we were happy to uh, help her do a little networking. So uh, eBase was a terrific show for me in that sense because I saw the the high end and the grassroots in the same place. You know. Excellent. That was nice. I wish the weather had been better in Switzerland, but um, they tell me it was very nice the week before I got there, and it was very nice the week after. I love it when that happens. Yeah, Great right. Story of my life. Yeah, right. Well, that's very cool. Anything else come out of A Base before we move on here? But uh, I think I think there were some interesting um, contracts signed. Uh, again, we'll see when we get a little further along. Uh, there was some conversation between uh, Cesar and uh, the next gen people uh, trying to coordinate, and there was a lot of uh, controversy over what had just come down with the volcano. In fact, I ended up staying a little bit longer because of the volcano. I think that's not going away. I think that's going to be a thorn in the side of European aviation for some time to come. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I. I was hanging out last week with a bunch of people, one of whom was an airline pilot who flies to Europe and back regularly. And uh, he was telling he, he almost wasn't able to uh, to join us um, because he was trapped in Europe and wasn't sure if he was going to be able to get back. Um, he was telling a lot of uh, interesting stories um, about the the the, uh, the challenges. They're 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 uh, shuttling crews all over Europe, repositioning people left and right in order to adjust for the uh, the uh, Perceived, at least, ash problem, and uh, it's, well, there's it's, there's no know, rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. Well, uh, well let's back up. Um, mm-hmm. are, are we? What are, what are we really discussing here? I mean, are we are we talking about the failure of the uh, of the bureaucracy? To uh, we're uh, talking about where it is now, which is basically they've agreed that we'll let you fly a little closer to it. They've agreed to make each individual area kind of makes its decisions, Mm -hmm. but it's still, these decisions are happening, you know, the night before, if that still based on predictions that may or may not. I mean, I I talked to people in UK who told me that the days that there was no flying going on were some of the brightest, bluest, most beautiful days they'd seen and it and and they couldn't quite get their head around how could it be so perfect and yeah. we can't fly that's and, interesting yeah and not only that but what's happening is they're diverting flights um that are leaving and they're adding two and a half 
three hours to them. My neighbor came from Dusseldorf 12 and a half hours to go Dusseldorf to Fort Myers because they had to go up and over and around the north side and come back down. I purposely left out of London and came back into the States in Chicago because I calculated that would be the most normal routing of that routing. Mm-hmm. And my flight was still an hour longer than it typically would have been. And, but what was happening is people are missing their connections. Right, right. I mean, it's, 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 it's costing so much time that when the flight does leave, it, they still can't get where they're needed to go. Well, is the is there are they thinking that, that the bureaucracy is overreacting? Is that the idea? Uh, well, yes, but <laughs> everybody thinks everybody who thinks it's overreacting is also still in the back of their head asking the question: When are we going to tear down one of these engines and really look and see what's in it? That was yeah. going to be my question: Is is there yet any evidence that there's really a, a risk here. I mean, the, the, yeah, yeah, there's evidence that there's a risk. They don't know how much of a risk. I see. Okay. Well, there was a NASA 707 chest plane that flew yeah. through a volcanic ash plume uh, on a research mission back around 2000. Yeah. It was a, a DC 8. And uh, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, DC 8. Uh, and uh, it was uh, rerouted. And uh, some considerable time added to its leg to get to Finland from Southern California. Uh, And that was pretty much up across Canada, over the top, and down into Finland. Well, they went even farther north to stay away from the ash plume, and they still wound up flying through ash. And they wound up flying through some mild ash uh, for quite some number of hours while it was doing its research work. And then it flew back to California on a ferry flight, and the engines were pulled and torn down. And they yeah. collected data on the uh, engine's operations, their temperatures and their fuel flows, uh, their, their uh, power turbine RPMs at the settings. They had a track record. They had a map that showed the deteriorating performance of the engines. Before they turned them down and found things like uh, hot formed glass lining the inside of the turbine blades that had microscopic holes in them so that they could be cooled internally and withstand higher uh, combustion chamber temperatures. Uh, The ash that was getting through the engine was getting into the cooling channels on the turbine vanes and turning to glass in there. Sure. It was turning into glass on some of the stator blades. Uh, It was accumulating in some of the stator vanes of the high-pressure compressor sections. Uh, It it was really quite extensive. And to fix it all up was uh, hugely expensive. But I guess my question is not whether or not they know that a certain amount of ash will cause a certain amount of damage to the engines. My question is, have we figured out a way to determine or predict 
how much ash is in the air on a given day over a given wow. spot in that's, Europe. That's, that's really the problem. And, and I think the answer to your first question, Jack, is what, you know, uh, one percent or one, one measurement or you know, the, 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 a, a minute measurement is, is too much. I mean, there's, yeah. There's, yeah, there's, um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, they're also you know, finding... You can't get a little bit pregnant. Um, you're either not pregnant or you're pregnant. Well, I don't know about that. I, I mean... Well, <laughs> Okay. I do. Well, I am glad <laughs> to hear that, Jackson. Yeah, okay. No, 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 no. Listen, you know, to a cer- up to a certain extent, certainly there's a threshold of it's not safe, and you don't want to cross that threshold. But, right. but, uh, but below that threshold, what you've got is just an increased cost of, of doing business. And well, yeah, yeah, well, okay. What, what, I read that same report that Dave referenced, um, and uh, um, basically of the four engines on the jet, uh, one of them was trashed, and and the other three were repairable. It was like three point five million dollar total tab price tag to for to do the repair work and re-engineering work and whatnot. Um, and that ash was never visible to the naked that, eye. That's one airplane that the ash was never visible to the naked eye, and the aircraft was specifically rerouted around what was presumed to be the ash cloud that it that it ended up flying through anyway. And it was a it was a very short encounter with the ash cloud. Uh, the onboard instruments demonstrated that that they 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 kind of sort of knew it at the time. And it was like, oops, well, let's let's study this and and the, you know flew the airplane, but the engines were were basically fouled up. One of them was pretty well trashed. Um, the airlines, uh, I would think, in their current economic state, don't want to take that kind of risk, putting aside the risk of, of actually crashing an airplane or something as a result. But more importantly, that was a, a, a very controlled experiment, one that they tried to route around the ash cloud. Um, I don't think we should be taking those kinds of chances on one level. On the other level... What the problem really is, is being able to observe and predict where the ash cloud will go. And until we get that nailed down, I kind of think maybe we're erring on the correct side here. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm told that some of the weather satellites, uh, that some of their sensor band capabilities uh, can pick up ash uh, when it's in the presence of moisture. Because moisture will condense around the ash particles and make them visible to these makes sensors, sense. uh, which you know makes sense to me on on a certain level. Uh, the, the 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 researchers are supposedly working on some better ways to detect it, because clearly predicting where it goes uh, using computer models and, and and other weather movement information, meteorological information is not proving to be hugely reliable. Uh, the airlines do know what kind of risk they're putting them, their aircraft and their passengers through and their wallets just in the maintenance concerns. But I think they're kind of playing this game both sides against the middle. I agree. By blaming all this disruption on over-eager bureaucrat, bureaucrats and sitting back and knowing bloody good, well, good and well that they don't want to be flying their aircraft through there anyway. Oh, I I agree with you wholeheartedly because I, you know, sometimes it's less expensive to cancel the flight. Sometimes you can even make money canceling the flight. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, well, 
I'm sorry. I was, um, no, the solution is just declare an emergency and do whatever you want to do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very nice segue. Never, Very no, nice never mind. Hey, listen, I, I do want to move on here, but I do want to ask one other question about this whole volcanic ash situation. And, and to bring it back a little bit more to the heart of, of GA, um, w- what are the ramifications of this, these conditions to like a piston aircraft? Or the systems on a general, um, on your basic GA airplane. Oh, you don't want to do that. Thing. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to do this in a piston airplane either, yeah, uh, okay. or a turboprop for the same reasons. Um, first of all, you're looking at erosion of the airframe, uh, which is another issue here. You're flying through all this this highly abrasive material at, at fast speeds. You're you're getting uh, um, um, uh, pitted windshields. Uh, the windshields are turning opaque. You can't see through them. Leading edges of the aircraft are, are, are being uh, abraded. Um, same thing will happen with your general aviation aircraft, perhaps to a lesser extent because you're not perhaps going as fast. Uh, the propellers, though, are, are going to get abraded. Uh, certainly the leading edges are going to be abraded. You may, you know, suffer some, some damage to the windscreen. Um, the uh, air filter, depending on, on the amount of ash you fly through, the air filter could become clogged, and uh, uh, if that happens, you, one of two things is going to occur. One, if you don't have an alternate air system or if it's malfunctioning, the engine's not going to get air, and it's not going to make power, and you're going to start you know, coming down, as it were. Um, on the flip side, if you do go to alternate air, carb heat, or, or whatever the alternate uh, <laughs> uh, induction system, air induction system is, that is going to introduce unfiltered air to the engine. Unfiltered air carrying highly abrasive uh, uh, microscopic particles. Need I elaborate? Yeah. Okay. I get it. And and in the presence of moisture, uh, this ash becomes yeah. acidic. It becomes, yeah. So yeah. It, it, you can very, have it laying around in areas where it, uh, moisture impregnates the uh, the ash. Chemically, takes on a, a, an acidic nature. And starts to play hell with any of the metal parts that it's in contact with, anyway. So it's, it's this bad is stuff on all not good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Moving on here. Um, uh, well, no, this is not related. It's sort of related. It's not related. Uh, Jeb, last episode um, in in one eighty seven, you made reference to uh, during a recent uh, uh, travels in your in the Debonair. You you said you got assaulted by thunderstorms. Oh, I did. Didn't and I, I yeah. cut you off and said we'd talk about it later in the episode, and then we didn't. And but I am intrigued by this statement. What what happened during your uh, your well, flying adventure? You know, assaulted is is it was more of a surprise to me. It's, to me, it's a little early in the season to have to be dealing with thunderstorms. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I was up uh, last weekend uh, in Newport News, Virginia at the, at a glorious occasion, the graduation of my daughter from college. Yeah. Very good. Congratulations and, to you, to her yeah. and to you. Thank you. And to her um, mom. And I'll, I'll pass all that along. Absolutely. Um, but I was coming back, uh, uh, a week ago today, Sunday evening, um, out of Newport News, uh, trying to go nonstop here to Sarasota. And, uh, um, the flight aware track is, is quite interesting actually. But uh, launched out of, out of Newport News, and I fire up the, the 396 and uh, give it some time to catch up with the weather. And it starts to paint some, uh, some X-red images about 100 miles uh, along my route. Um, but I zoom in on it all, and, and uh, 
it sh- the the XM presentation shows my route going right between two cells with you know like twenty miles on each side, no issues. And uh, I keep looking at this and looking at this, and it doesn't change. And the 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 next shred's updating itself. Everything's normal, moving right along. I said, all right, fine. I'll just continue going the direction I'm going. So, uh, you know, after about I get about fifty miles away from this stuff, and I start to see it with the with the eyeballs and see it visually and. Yeah, this it's not you know it's not very formidable as far as some stuff I've seen, but I still don't want to fly through there, and you know mm-hmm. the hole is still there and no issues, so I keep motoring along and motoring along, and I get about fifteen twenty miles from this stuff, and I'm watching it on on Nextrad, I'm watching it with my eyeball, and it's the hole starts to close. Yeah, <laughs> okay, and I get right up to it, and the hole slams shut. Yep, like, people. And start looking, you know, poking around, turn this way, turn the other way, and can't see any blue on the other side of this. And, and um, are, you, are you on an IFR plan at this point? On an IFR fly plan. And, okay. And uh, start, um, uh, you know, playing with the Nectrad, zooming in, zooming out, and, and all this kind of thing. There's, it's just slammed shut. So uh, I was talking to the controller. I said, yeah, this, this hole just shut. You know, what, you got any suggestions? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn east right now. And uh, I was somewhere, not maybe I was maybe 50 miles east of Raleigh, Raleigh Durham area, at the time, and uh, ended up having to go all the way to the coast of mm-hmm. North Carolina around Newburn uh, to get around this stuff and turn the corner. And everybody else was going the same. I had a seven three pass me going the other way, you know, just climbing out of uh, uh, an airport near there, and um, everybody else was going the same way. But it was just, it was just annoying. It was, it was, you know, it was too early in the season to be dealing with this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So motored on down, uh, took kind of a modified shark route over the, over the ocean uh, to, to get around the big bend there uh, between, say, Charleston and Jacksonville. And, and uh, started motoring on across Florida and, and down towards Sarasota. And, of course, there's another set of stuff. My, my pre-flight briefing told me that it was all south of Sarasota. It would not be a factor. Well, okay, four hours later, it's not now. It, it's now, you know, north of Sarasota and in my way and a factor. And, uh, you know, a little bit more bobbing and weaving and trying to, you know, slow down and come down all at the same time. And it was just a higher workload environment that I, was, that I had signed up for that trip, let's put it that way. Um, again, just too early in the, in the season to be dealing with this stuff. But the punchline is, if there is a punchline, is um, it is now summertime, officially. And uh, those of us who are out there flying around IFR or VFR, uh, we need to pay attention. Uh, It's it's thunderstorm season again. Yeah, it will be summertime on the calendar for a couple more weeks. But in terms of the kick-your-butt weather, it's been here for a while. You should have seen what was going on Friday in Atlanta. Really well, someone someone said something about that. Yeah, yeah. What what, what was it, Amy? It just it was a it was a complex of uh, of uh, thunderstorms came through there, and unfortunately came through between oh I'd say one and four o'clock in the afternoon, which I don't think you could pick a worse time to long. have you know Hartsfield have to deal with a with a big fat thunderstorm complex. Uh they held everything inbound on the ground. So, you know, they had gate holds 
And since Hartsfield is a giant hub, what do you think happened? No one made their flights. Mm-hmm. Roto-Rooter, that's a name, and away your troubles down the train. <laughs> When it gets backed up there, baby, it's backed up. Oh, backed up. I get it. (laughs) Yeah, Jeb, I was wondering, too. (laughs) Call me slow, if you will. That one did not immediately resonate. No, me neither. Me neither. Me neither. You know, and and it's my brain tends to shut down when Dave sings anyways. So. (laughs) Yeah. And, and my, we would know my, my that entire, as opposed to the rest of the time, how? My, my entire auditory system just kind of starts to vibrate and, and rebel. <laughs> really, really. I just, I, I just keep thinking to myself, why isn't that muting? Um, so- <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's contact the Skype developers and, and suggest. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. David, what, um, so one of your future airplanes is a story about the jetpack. What's going on with the jetpack? Well, it's, it's getting ink again. Uh, Mercy, where, where did that show up? Let's see. No, that's not there. Oh, here it was. It made the Huffington Post about a week ago. <laughs> Seriously, made the Huffington Post under the headline, World's First Commercial Jetpack to be Sold for $75,000, and it had a video. Uh-huh. But wait a minute, weren't uh, they asking $100,000 for it? Well, that's what they said they thought it would come out to when they brought the Martin Jetpack. You long-time listeners may remember that we've uh, taunted, teased, and laughed about this idea before. Uh, yeah, it was going to be $100,000 when it first showed up at Oshkosh uh, AirVenture 08. Uh, and didn't make anywhere near the the splash in '09, and you know, and then now it's you know, then it makes Huffington Post and uh, what is this the uh, the London Daily Mail? Uh, same photograph, which I think is interesting because I think that's uh, either I think that's Jamie Hindman from MythBusters on there. Yeah. And, this thing in the photograph. Either that so, or it's G.I. Joe. G.I. We, we, Joe. We've secretly replaced the jet pack you thought you would get as a child with this propeller pack, and we've reduced the price. Let's see if anyone notices. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's all there is to it. They just, they just managed to get some more press, uh, perhaps because they lowered the price, or perhaps because they just convinced Huffington Post to write about it. And, uh, well, it... It it, it put it it kind of reminded me of some perspective that this whole thing created that uh, uh, I lacked. I mean, they're they're offering this as a legal ultralight, a legal Part One Hundred Three aircraft uh, with the you know the the legal limit five gallons of fuel, which means in its terms you can fly about thirty minutes because it's got a two hundred horsepower V four two stroke engine. <laughs> Two, 200 horsepower. Now, most ultralights I've flown didn't need more than 60 horsepower, and quite a number of them flew along jolly happy on 27 or 30 uh, and burning, you know, appropriately little fuel in the process. Five gallons in, in my, one of my old favorites, the, uh, the uh, Max Air Drifter 227, had a single-cylinder 27-horse Rotax two-stroke. Oh, it that's earned, what I learned to. That's what I learned to fly tail draggers in. 
Yeah, it it was a great tailwheel airplane, and and it only burned about three quarts an hour. So yeah. five gallons meant you know you could fly most of the day in that puppy. This goes through five gallons in thirty minutes, not counting reserves for touchdown. Well, you know, Dave, that's because even a brick will fly <laughs> if, you <laughs> if you give it enough power. It takes that much power to lift itself, two hundred and fifty pounds or so and a 200-odd-pound human being straight freaking up. So call, call me. When people start using these to commute to their jobs downtown, call me. There's George Jetson. Yeah, okay. <laughs> He's singing again. <laughs> On a more serious note. Yeah, I know. On a more serious note, uh, so I'm reading from a story in uh, avweb.com. Um, United 757 lands with serious cockpit fire. A United 757 en route from New York to Los Angeles Monday made an emergency landing at Dulles. Passengers told the Associated Press Monday afternoon that shortly after takeoff, they smelled smoke and a flight crew member, this is almost like a comedy scene, I don't know, a flight crew member opened the cockpit door requesting a fire extinguisher. Passenger was, the co- told, was, the, was the cabin crew's member's name Shirley? Yeah. The passenger told AP that open flames were visible and at least one windshield was Oh, cracked. Shirley was an old flame of his. The air, aircraft diverted to <laughs> Dulles and made a successful landing with no injuries. This, I mean, you know, all kidding aside, this sounds like an incredibly serious situation. Uh, They're having a lot with, of problems yeah, with, yeah, with they are. windshields. Yeah. And what it, the problem is what? The, uh, the, uh, um, they overheat and catch on fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's well, kind of it. That's kind of put it get as succinctly as it can be put. Um, it would I mean, seem that if this it. is a known problem, why don't they fix it? Well, well there's an had, AD out of, because of it. What, what they did, uh, there is an AD out there. And what, what the, old, the old design was basically, you know, here, here's the windshield. It's manufactured. It's laminated glass, plastic, whatever. Uh, and it's got you know heating elements built into it to heat the windshield for defrosting, de-icing, uh, whatever. And it's it's a you know substantial piece of equipment. It's highly engineered. And they mount it in the in the frame uh, in the windshield frame in the in the in the cockpit. And then they have to connect the the heating elements to um, the aircraft's electrical system. And apparently in the past uh, the connections have been. Um, Oh, maybe they didn't. The connections maybe didn't uh, receive the same level of engineering as the rest of the assembly. Let's put it that way. And they arced and shorted and started some fires and stuff like that. Okay, so they changed the air, the wiring connections design uh, to include a threaded connector. Okay, and in the instant case, I believe um, the threaded connector was found cross-threaded. So it was maybe rattling around a little bit and shorting and, and creating this fire situation. So they're going to have to go back to the drawing board again on some of this. Um, this is not just seven fives, according to the Avweb story, but it's in fact uh, all the the current manufacturer Boeing's, in, except for maybe the seven three, seven four, seven five, seven six, and seven seven aircraft. And, and I misspoke. There wasn't an airworthiness directive finalized on it. There was a, uh, uh, a an inspection. Board. That's right. Inspection order or inspection it, it, mechanism it, it, sent in a service bulletin from Boeing. And Boeing it changed the design the years yeah. ago. Yeah, Boeing yeah. changed the design years ago. Uh, according to the Avweb story, aircraft made since 2005 have a different windshield heating design. Uh, but there's still a lot of those aircraft out in the fleet, out in service, and 
and I, they haven't fixed this one yet. Well, they they will they will get really serious about it should it ever cause a crash and kill some people. And they'll they'll definitely get serious on about it, and the lawyers will be out there pointing fingers, and you know, and and the safety authorities or the safety observers, the Monday morning quarterbackers, will be saying, you know, if we'd only known it was going to be serious. <laughs> I well, just, you know, but there the air, was the airlines, fire. There was fire the in should, the cockpit. Right. The airline should be concerned about this, not just from a safety standpoint. There's this, you know, obviously a substantial safety concern here. But also the economics of this. Yeah. They, the, a, they shouldn't have to go around uh, um, inspecting these windshields all the time. They should, you know, come up with a final fix and, and install it and, and walk away and move on to some other issue. But it, it's not an insignificant expense either to have to divert a flight and then, you know, repair the, you know, get the passengers onto another flight, yada, yada, yada. But then repair the damage done by this fire. So, not, to, uh, not to mention the uh, trauma of the pilots. Yeah. You don't really want to get up and go to work the next day. And he'll be the only person on the flight to get fresh roasted nuts. <laughs> oh, man. man. All right, Jack, <laughs> I don't you know. and I have to talk I... tomorrow night about that. Yeah, I, I don't know. We're going to have to have a meeting. We'll have to have a meeting. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Um, another story from AvWeb. Uh, this one, let's see now. Uh, Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood has announced the formation of the Future of Aviation Advisory Committee that may help form changes in the country's not aviation impressed. policy. Not I know. I'm, you know, I, it's all going to be okay now, right? I, <laughs> David? We are so one at a time. David, what do you think about this? Well, uh, I start with the recognition that this has as much chance of influencing future policy as any of the last five or six blue ribbon commissions, white paper creation panels, and sundry other. We're going to look at this once and for all and decide what it is that we're going to ignore this time. So, uh, you know, I got really low expectations for them having any long-term impact. But it would be nice to hear the discussions. And the discussions along balanced lines are not capable of existing because about 40% of the representatives appointed to this thing come from or directly involved in the airline industry or the government's oversight of the airline industry or labor unions for the airline industry. Uh, and there's one GA person named yeah. to it. Uh, wholly, wholly uh, unacceptable and insufficient. Yeah, this this should really be called the the commercial, the future of commercial aviation and and aviation labor uh, uh, committee. Um, I see if I can. I don't have a, a link here. I did read a press release, but we're looking at you know machinist union, flight attendants union, Alpa. We're looking at Boeing. Um, JetBlue Airways, JetBlue Airways, uh, as opposed to you know, you know, United or a Delta. Um, um, Jack Pelton, CEO, current CEO of Cessna, is the only identifiable um, general aviation uh, representative, and I put the word representative in quotes, not because Pelton's not a member of the of the GA community, but because Cessna is only uh, one one segment of the GA community, a very broad one to, to be sure, but there are so many other facets to to, uh, to the GA community and the GA industry. And, 
And, of course, you know, all that having been said and done, Cessna is going to focus on its higher ticket items, the citations and, and such and whatnot. Here's a, here's a release. We've got Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics, Stanford University, um, Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, JetBlue, I mentioned, uh, Republic Airways, um, the HA, the Haas, I guess, School of Business, University of California, Berkeley, San Diego County Regional Airport Authority, um, Transport Workers Union of America, AFL-CIO, um, Goodrich Corporation, I mentioned, International Association of Flight, or Association of Flight Attendants, Communications Workers of America, AFL-CIO, uh, UPS Airlines, ALPA, Consumers Union, Consumers Union, come on, yeah. um, Hudson Security, U.S. Airlines Research Analyst, Hudson Securities. Now, what is a financial, a company with financial interests doing, talking about the future uh, of aviation if, if we're not talking about commercial aviation? Well, they're going to loan us the money that we need to put the ADSB equipment in our airplanes. I'm sorry, I guess well, I'd, UAS I'd, is in I did a blog post. I did a blog post about this the day that the panel uh, uh, was named. Uh, it still lights me up like a Roman candle. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, that yeah. we've got five thousand airports, uh, about six hundred thousand pilots flying uh, over two hundred thousand private aircraft, or thereabouts, uh, and it's almost as if 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 we're not customers for one of the major manufacturers, we don't exist. We don't get an airports person. We don't get a pilot person. Uh, we don't get anybody representing the FBO uh, or, or the business side of it below the airline business. Uh, and I find it in, in, insulting and unacceptable. But I, I well, thought- I, I don't disagree with you. I, my my only my only concern here is 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 really twofold. One. Um, they should change the name. They should call this the commercial aviation, the future of commercial aviation. Well, that's the way it's structured, yeah. for sure. I know. Uh, but secondly, I, I kind of I breathe a sigh of relief because uh, I don't want DOT in my knickers. I don't want them chairing a, 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 convening a committee uh, to consider the future of general aviation. I don't think that's A, necessary, B, appropriate, or C, helpful. I don't think DOT knows anything about general aviation. I think if if you look at everything that has come down from DOT in the last decade, that is absolutely indicative of the fact that DOT does not understand GA. I I recommend forcing them to learn rather than letting them just ignore things. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. How How do we educate DOT? That's a good question. I don't How know do you, that we should. But that's I, I'm right now. I'm just so thrilled about this whole thing that I think about how you train a puppy to stay on the newspaper. Okay. Uh, no, I'm serious. No, we yeah. rub their nose in a little bit. We put it in their face a little bit. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, but uh, my only disagreement here with with uh, with Jack and Amy's observation is that they do crap that's bad for us and bad to us in the absence of any input from us, partly because they're getting so much input from those other nimnals that use the airspace. And I object to anything that lets the other nimnals have a say that doesn't have more people, there, as, as many people there watching out for our side as they've got watching for their side because Spell they will nimble. lie, cheat, steal, 
obfuscate uh, and undermine anything that's good for GA if there's an extra penny of revenue in it per passenger mile. Nimnal? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm with yep. you, David. I just uh, we need to figure out what to do about it. We need to we need to call our representatives again. Like the I guess. Secretary of Transportation, write the White House. Uh, I I wouldn't bother. I, I would copy your member of Congress, but I would make the letter to the two big guys here. Okay. And say, what are you insane? Okay. Um, in uh, in what I'll call our on-field landing of the week. Uh, <laughs> We have a story from the uh, MercuryNews.com in uh, San Jose, California. Plane lands safely at San Jose's Reed Hillview Airport after landing gear jams. Uh, on one level, this is a strikes me as being a fairly routine gear up situation. Uh, I mean, it's always something to take very seriously, as I understand it. I'm not specifically trained, but from what I've read, but but these things usually end well. Um, the story, though, is is kind of interesting, even though it's only about. 10 graphs long, um, it, it seems that when the pilot realized he was having gear problems, the county decided to, uh, to scramble just an incredible uh, array of, uh, of support gear. Um, they were ready to foam the runway. They, it says the pilot circled for two hours while the ground operation was coordinated, and he burned the fuel. I have to tell you, this whole story brings to mind this particular uh, uh, passage, all right? and I will read it to you. And they was using up all kinds of cop equipment that they had hanging around the police officer's station. They were taking plaster tire tracks, footprints, dog-smelling prints. They took 27 8 by 10 color glossy pictures with circles. With a paragraph on the back of each one. Each one, right? They took pictures with of the approach, the airway, the northwest corner, the southwest corner, and that's not to mention the aerial photography. It seems that, it seems that when Santa Clara County decided discovered that there was going to be a gear up landing at Reed Hillview, they, they, they just scrambled they, all they, the gear. It, and it Ended 30 minutes before they were able to haul over the Group W bench. I know. <laughs> Anyways, we're going congratulations to this pilot who's, let's see, I'm not sure if they have the guy's name here, uh, flying this uh, 182 uh, uh, RG, RG2. Is that an actual aircraft, aircraft designation? Uh, uh, yeah, it's, our, the yeah. two is just a, uh, like a, um, an option pack. It's yeah. like. So he uh, he did what he's supposed to do and uh, landed this thing gear up and uh, and uh, and the guys with the foam made a big mess of of because they foamed it after he landed right um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know anyway. they, got, they need to go back to school again on that one I know anyway they got live foam practice baby that's right that's right they got to use the uh, all the gear. And uh, and I guess that's it was that's, a, it was a boring Saturday afternoon. They had nothing else better to do. I know. Uh, Jeb, you wanted to call our attention to uh, an, a bad aviation journalism. What story is this? Let's see. You know, I haven't actually looked at it again. Mm -hmm. I looked at it a couple of days ago, and uh, uh, this is the Santa Monica Daily Press, and the headline here is "Pot Bust Raising Questions." Um. Make a somewhat long story short, a um, an airplane departed Santa Monica, headed for Pontiac, Illinois, uh, loaded with pot. They find out later on, it was a um, didn't say specifically what kind. Um, said it was a 1971 twin engine Beechcraft, and they of course misspelled Beechcraft. Yeah. Um, but just reading through this, the the, the the piece is just rife with errors, factual errors, just just stupid errors. Um, 
instead of embryo, somewhere in here they they mentioned the uh, oh they they, they talked to a guy at ah um, there it em- is embry riddle aeronautical they, they misspelled embry it's ambry riddle and I just I pointed I just brought this to to my colleagues' attention here just as um, uh, an example of bad aviation journalism um, where the reporter. Um, could not get the facts right, but more importantly, he writes the story in a in a fa- he, he writes the lead in a fashion that it, it's it's raising questions about security at the Santa Monica Airport. But if you start reading down further into the story, um, we find out that um, someone tipped the local authorities. I think it was the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, federal uh, federales. Notified months in advance, okay, local law enforcement officials were, and employees at SMO, that this investigation was underway and to keep an eye on this aircraft and this pilot and things like this. And they, the, they reported that the guy had just taken off and, and had a couple, couple of people with him and, and some duffel bags maybe and, and all this kind of thing. And um, they busted the flight when it landed in Pontiac, Illinois, and arrested the three people and... Oh, I forget how many how many pounds of pot were on this thing. Um, three hundred pounds, something like that. Um, the yeah, three hundred pounds of pot. Um, this system worked. This is the this is the the system that we have in place in this country right now. Uh, it's the best one we can come up with that doesn't require a bunch of money and a bunch of people uh, um, going through your wallet every time you want to go to your personal aircraft. Um, and the well, system my, worked. Uh, the headline doesn't. There's no questions here about the security system involved. It worked. Everything right. and everybody did their job, and boom, we're, we're, end of story. But no, we have to write this news story in such a fashion. We have to give it a, a provocative headline. And, of course, we have to then start generating a bunch of, of, uh, of errors uh, in the story. My and only just, quibble with your observation of this is hanging the label aviation journalism on this. This is not aviation journalism per se. This is just bad journalism in general, which is too much of what we see these days from the general media entertaining arguments between two unequal points of view and presenting them as if both sides are equal. You know, uh, uh, sun, just... sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening. No, it does it the other way around. Okay, you don't present those as equal when facts show that the sun comes up in the morning and sets in the evening. It's okay to call the other guy out on the fact that his information's wrong. So, uh, but this is just sloppy, bad. Uh, boy, I don't even know what to say beyond that. Amy, just what were you going to say? Bad I, I'm simply going to suggest that that the writer of this piece or its editor for lack of uh, any editing that could possibly have been done, clearly wasn't fact-checked or spell-checked, um, perhaps was using some of the, the um, you know, uh, contraband from the airplane. <laughs> and maybe that's the only problem. Maybe here. that would explain the whole thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Hey, listen, we're reaching the end of our allotted time here. Uh, Shout-outs. What do we got here? Um, I've got two. I'm going to do one and then let you guys go. My first one uh, is... This is maybe a little more than a shout out, but I don't want to make too much, too huge a deal out of it. But I discovered something interesting recently. 
Um, for the past six or so months, we have from time to time wondered what became of the guy who had all of the Highlander videos on YouTube where he was landing it out in the middle of nowhere on the tops of mountains and um, on the sides of hills and just some, some really cool, interesting flying. Um, the sort of uh, a highlight, the highest point of his of his uh, uh, video demonstrations was a clip where he did a dead stick takeoff where he rolled his airplane down a very steep hill and then glided it like I don't know some many thousands of feet um in in the you know vertical in drop many many miles and then and landed on a uh, you know the, um on a uh, on a sandbar or something next to a river anyways we've been wondering what happened to this guy and we were speculating all kinds of things like uh you know he got tired of the notoriety or he was doing all these things on private land and got in trouble or well it seems now apparent what happened because I discovered the other day that uh, he has turned all this footage into a DVD, which he is now selling. Um, and if you want, you can now find, uh, uh, you can purchase his DVD. You can go to deadsticktakeoff.com, and uh, you can see a few highlight clips at this website, but more to the point is that you can now purchase a DVD, which contains all of these uh, these clips, or at least it seems to contain all of them, um, including the dead stick flight, and uh, um, it's pretty cool. W one thing that's nice about it is that uh, uh, he seems to have enhanced them a little bit more voiceover. Um, these are all now very high quality clips. Um, uh, they seem to be the original ones, it's just that they lost quality in in going onto YouTube, but now they're a very high quality video, and it shows this guy flying uh, his Highlander doing some cool things, and uh, that's what happened. He decided to make a DVD, so he pulled them all down off of YouTube in the meantime. So you might want to take a look if you're interested in this. Uh, I think I'm going to buy it because it was it was cool video. Deadsticktakeoff.com. See, I, I would make a video like that. I'd call it, you know, I try to try to do a dead stick takeoff in my debonair here, but I don't have the I don't have the hills. Yeah, that's the that's don't that's all that you're missing, right? You, we don't. Because <laughs> you could have taken your debonair to this hill and done the same stunt, right? It would have once. <laughs> it would have been a great video too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> once, yeah. Okay. Uh, who else has got a shout out? Anybody? Oh, I, I have kind of a reverse shout out. Uh oh. Okay. Okay. This is another item I, I found this week. Um, um, Headline is pilot takes off. With, I'm sorry, plane takes off without pilot at Centennial. This is out of uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, a pilot at Centennial Airport did not have a good day Monday, according to the county sheriff's office, and I won't mention his name. Had trouble getting the engine on a Cessna 182 Skyline to start from the cockpit because the plane's battery was dead. The guy then got out of the airplane and attempted to start the engine manually by turning the propeller. It worked too well. The plane taxied on its own, crossing an active runway and hitting several runway signs before flipping over. The plane traveled about 1,000 feet on its own, and uh, it's a total loss. Basically, it's another one of these, uh, another hand-propping incident gone bad. Um, I don't know why we keep doing this. I don't know what part of our training is, is, is askew here. Um, why people insist on, on trying to hand prop an airplane uh, without any experience, without someone else at the controls, uh, without securing the airplane and making sure that it won't get away, all, yada, 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 yada. And, and Jack, you, you got a great lesson in this when you were down here uh, a couple months ago. Yep. In, in hand propping an airplane uh, the, the correct way. And, and this isn't uh -huh. the correct way. 
Yeah. I just, I just, I'm so impressed that this guy who was not a young guy, yeah. actually hand propped a 182 is this not. Is the there, part that there's that. Me. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't even have thought that you could do this under any circumstances, but I guess you can, huh? Well, yeah. he probably tried it a couple of times and just it didn't quite work. So he went in there and it gave it some more throttle, and sure enough, it worked that time. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I okay. mean, with it, the compression it, on that engine, you shouldn't have been able to do it. Yeah, it got up and went. It got up it and went. Didn't go far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it it was. Yeah. Fortunately, he's lucky it, that he didn't give it a little bit more throttle, and you know. Wherever the trim was set, because Cessnas are famous for taking off. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Yep. Yep. Have another balloon boy incident. Yeah. Uh, other shout outs? David, you want to talk about this? Uh, Anderson yeah, Air? just real, two, two real quick ones. Uh, back in my home state of Indiana, folks at Anderson Municipal Airport are having a 50th anniversary celebration on July 10. Uh, Hot air balloon rides, pancake breakfast. Uh, I'm sure they'll be doing some uh, some bu- dogs and burgers on the grill and and some other air show stuff. There's a link to be on the website. They're asking for a five dollar donation to benefit the local EAA chapter and other volunteer aviation groups. Uh, and we've mentioned before that you can write in, call in, go online, and get your air venture no temp for July 26th, August 1, 2010. You can also go to the, if you're a first-timer, and I suggest this, airventure.org slash ATC, and they have a whole series of pages there to explain the air traffic procedures and give you a look at some of the uh, some of the material on the websites. It's not meant to be a substitute for the NOTAM, but... It's just one more way to kind of prep yourself for going to Oshkosh. And there is a link on the page to getting the NOTAM, which you're going to want. You're going to have, right? Tell me now. Let's everybody hear it. Everybody's going to have it. We're all going to have, have, have read okay. it. I'm not even flying in, and I'm going to have the NOTAMs. I already <laughs> ordered mine, baby. Yeah. So, Gonna yeah. have it, and I wanted to, Jack. I wanted to say yeah. that uh, I am going to be participating in the ramp up to this year's Air Race Classic, which is starting here in Fort Myers, Florida, in the middle of June. So I'm going to oh, be cool. giving the safety seminar. So I'm oh. kind of psyched about that. Yeah, neat. Yeah, so cool. somewhere around the uh, 21st, 22nd, 23rd of June. Start uh, perking up and listening to hear uh, they're, they're starting in Fort Myers. They're going to do a rather zigzaggy course, but they're going to finish in Frederick, Maryland. So maybe I've we'll get them. Maybe we'll get them to take a letter to uh, the powers that be at DOT representing yeah. uh, the a, general aviation good, crowd. It would be a good additional voice or two. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, I just a quick shout out to the uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, AOPA. Um, I, I got a little packet in the mail from them uh, this past week, and I thought that it was because I renewed my membership while I was down in Lakeland, and I thought, okay, this is part of the kind of annual little packet of stuff that they send you. I opened it up to discover that it contained um, um, a 20-year membership pin for me um, because... Oot. 
I have just passed my 20th uh, anniversary of being a member of AOPA, and, and I got a cool little set of uh, AOPA wings, um, not unlike the wings that every member gets, only these are labeled 20 years on them, and it's, it's very nice. It's very cool. I appreciate that, and uh, I'll be proud to put that on my hat this summer as I go around to air shows. So, very cool. Thank you. Well, congratulations. Yeah, well, you know, there are some things that you can accomplish simply by getting older. Uh, yeah, I was just about to say, age does have its benefits. Yeah, that's right. You know, all you got to do is just, like, get older. and there's Live long enough. Just kind of come, come along whether you like, whether you have anything to do with it or not. Um, but I'm very, pl- I'm very pleased with this, and I'll wear it proudly. Uh, any other shout-outs? I'm dead. No? Okay, great. See, I, I, I needed another shout-out so that I can get organized here. Uh, so thanks to everybody for getting together in a hangar tonight. Uh, once again, my apologies for the late start, but uh, it turned out okay, I guess. Uh, thanks to uh, Amy Laboda, who is a uh, freelance aviation writer and the editor-in-chief of Aviation for Women magazine. Amy, where can people find you and your magazine on the web? They can find the magazine at afwdigital.org, and that's uh, the official publication of Women in Aviation International. That's WAI. Great. Thank you. And uh, Jeb Burnside is an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the web? AviationSafetyMagazine.com, JEBurnside.com, occasionally on AvWeb, and maybe on your local police plotter. (laughs) Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Where can people find you on the Internet, David? Uh, you know, I was looking in that wire the other day. Uh, how about avbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, that safety thing that Jeb just talked about, uh, um, eaa.org, I've been in sport aviation some lately, or davehigdon.biz, my photography site. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips. Uh, We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just $10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation wiki. movies list, the new ratings, web page of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? There's a easy way to live as long and hardy as Jack Jeb and me. That's to go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Jack, we really started. We have to start doing these earlier to give David less time to come up with these antics. A-M-F-F-E-N until next time. Oh, I don't know about the the nicely warm nuts, David. Yeah.